The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, thank you, Laura. Beautiful, beautiful words. And sometimes I, I wonder how often do we think about the words that we sing. Do, do you bow your heart, take up your cross and follow after Jesus? Do you, do you think about what does it mean to, to bow your heart, take up your cross and follow Jesus? Uh, the, the cross wasn't a, a piece of jewelry. Uh, the cross was a, a means of execution. And the person who picked up the cross was going to die. That's, that's what we're, we're singing about. And uh, this morning I was also reminded of the verses of another hymn, Jesus I my cross have taken. Listen to this line. Go then earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. I, I wonder if we, we sing that with any kind of understanding of what we're asking for. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service pain is pleasure, and with thy favor loss is gain. And you know that in your heart it's true, but it takes you a while to get there sometimes, doesn't it? To say that I really want to embrace that. We, we, we know that it's true, but it's, it's more of a prayer than it is a desire. <laughs> like, Lord, help me to get there where I can embrace disaster, scorn, pain. That I could see loss is actually favor, and pain is pleasure. And today we're going to turn to a text that speaks about these themes. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to take a break from Daniel. Uh, we'll get back to, to Daniel next week. But uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is uh, what I would consider to be a, a dangerous but glorious text. A dangerous but glorious text. We'll take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'll start at verse 1, but my focus will be verses 3 down to verse 13. But we'll start at Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Why don't you follow with me as I read. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, 
so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, as we take a look at this text, and my Father, I pray that you would instruct us by it. My Father, that you would help us to embrace the truths that are contained within this passage. Father, that we would recognize that we're disciplined for holiness. And Father, that uh, there's something that you desire in our lives, Lord, that's even greater than our comfort and ease. That you desire to see holiness in our lives. And Father, I pray that we would submit to the master surgeon that we would allow him to perform his surgery on our lives, in our hearts. And Father, that you would be glorified in all things because you deserve all glory. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christians, uh, we're convinced that the world that we live in is completely underneath the sovereign control of God, aren't we? We, we believe that God is in control. God is in control of all things. And we say things that, like God is all wise and God is all good and God is all powerful. You know, those are truths that we would affirm. He rules over all and that's something that we've been covering in the book of, of Daniel that, that God sits in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. That he rules over all and he sets over the, the kingdoms of, of men, the lowliest of men. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115 verse 3. But that sovereign control does not mean that life for the Christian now becomes easy. You know, just because God is in control of all things doesn't mean that life now becomes easy for us. God's care for us does not guarantee us a life of ease. In fact, you might not have known trouble until you became a Christian. As an unbeliever, you might have had it easy, but now you're looking down a path that's filled with with sorrow and pain and affliction, and you're wondering, is this life really worth it? Amen, it is. Is there a real temptation? And there might be a real temptation that you have to lose heart. And that's the same temptation that was felt by a man named Asaph in Psalm 73. If you want to flip back there just for a minute, just as a, by way of illustration, Psalm 73. This is probably the same Asaph that we find in 1 Chronicles 15. He was a Levitical singer. He was appointed as a chief minister before the ark of the Lord. And he wrote a number of psalms, including Psalm 73. But look at what he says in Psalm 73, starting at verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. That was actually a good thing. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Drop down to verse 12. It says, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Lord, here I am trying to do the right thing. And why does affliction seem to to dog my steps? I'm trying to do what's right, Lord. But I'm chastened every morning. And Asaph here was in danger of slipping away underneath the chastening of God. And that's really what we learn about if you want to flip back to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. That's what we learn about in Hebrews as well. Hebrews is a book 
just to give you the, the theme of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is a book that focuses primarily on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And those of you who are in the journey through scripture class, you would have been able to, to quote that for me. Like no other book of scripture, the book of Hebrews focuses on the supremacy of Christ. One author said that the book of Romans reveals the necessity of the Christian faith, but the book of Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. And that's why the book of Hebrews has been called by some the book of better things. The book of better things. Because everywhere that you turn in the book of, of Hebrews, Christ is being compared to some character or ritual or symbol or event. And every time, Christ is said to be better. He's always better. He, he offers a better hope, a better covenant, a better ministry, better promises, better blood, better tabernacle, a better sacrifice, better possessions, a better country, a better resurrection. What we find in Christ is always better. And as chapter 11 and verse 40 says, God has provided something better for us. We have something better in Jesus Christ. And the idea that you should walk away with from the book of, of Hebrews is that if I have Christ, I have the best. I have the best if I have Christ. And it doesn't matter what I compare Jesus to, Jesus always comes out on top. And that would have been particularly important for the original readers of this book because this book was specifically written to a group of people who are tempted to throw in the towel and call it quits. Flip over to chapter 10 in Hebrews, chapter 10. Just to give you an idea of the, the kind of obstacles that were along the path. The primary uh, recipients of this letter were Jewish people who came out of Judaism to follow Christ. But soon they discovered that following Jesus didn't guarantee their best life now, just to, to borrow a popular phrase. And in chapter 10, the author reminds them of where they've already been. Look at verse 32. He says in verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So this was a group that lost a lot for their commitment to Christ. They named the name of Christ and they started to lose. They started to lose. A pain of great conflict and suffering, persecution, shame of being made a, a public spectacle. They were being made fun of. They endured reproaches and tribulations, difficulties. They experienced ridicule. They, they, they actually, some of them were imprisoned. A number of them even lost their property, their possessions, what they had to live on. And now all of a sudden, they're looking further down the path and they're starting to think to themselves, I don't know if I want to keep going down this road. This is tough. They're like the children of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness and wondering, I, you know what, things might have been better back in Egypt. I'm starting to have fond memories of what we had in Egypt. I mean, we had the onions and the leeks and the melons. And now look at what we have out here in this wilderness. Nothing but this manna. We remember the fish we used to eat. Appetite is gone. Nothing at all to look at but this manna. Somehow they forgot the chains and the slavery that they were in, right? Now all of a sudden everything was better back then instead of what they were going to. They're tempted to, to quit, attempted, tempted to even appoint their own leader to go back to Egypt. Kind of like the character Pliable. I'm not sure if you ever read the, the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you haven't, you need to pick it up and read it. There's a character named Pliable who began the journey with Christian. But as soon as things started to become difficult, he fell into what, what Bunyan calls the slough of despond. And this is what he said. He says, is this the happiness that you've told me of all this while? 
If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And then he gave one or two desperate struggles and got out of the mire on the other side of the bog, not towards the celestial city, but back towards the city of destruction where he came from. So away he went, and Bunyan says, Christian saw him no more. That was it. Pliable didn't have the heart to continue, didn't have the endurance of faith, so he shrunk back. Like Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's these stern warnings. Don't drift away. Don't go astray. Don't fall through. Don't fall away. Don't shrink back. Don't come short. And all those are the signs of false conversion. You're not a real believer if you fall back. If you go back to Egypt, you don't really belong to the promised land. But hold fast, enter in, press on, draw near, endure. A true believer can never say, I've fallen and I can't get up. True believers persevere. We, we continue. But that doesn't mean that our, our arms don't get weak and our knees don't get feeble. As Christians, our legs often tremble under the weight of affliction, persecution, suffering, ridicule, pain. And we need to be reminded to, to persevere and not fall to the temptation to check out. I remember a, a number of years ago, I was at a, a master seminary banquet, and there was this bright-eyed seminary graduate, and he said something like this. He says, uh, you know, I've heard pastors out there talking about how they've got a hard time in ministry, but, you know, I've been trained so well that I haven't had any difficulty at all. I don't have any, any difficulties. I'm so thankful that my training prepared me so well to avoid all the difficulties that I hear about out there in ministry. And uh, my friend Clay, who was here with us for the anniversary service, he leaned over, he says, give him a year. <laughs> just, just give him a year. The next year, we saw him at a shepherd's conference, the same guy that gave this testimony of no difficulties, no problems, everything's just, you know, so easy in ministry. Uh, and Clay said, you know, hey, hey, brother, how's it going? He said, man, it is hard. It is, wow, I, I had no idea. Time and truth go hand in hand, right? There, there's a reason that we're constantly called to endure. It's because the temptation is to check out. Because it's hard. It's hard to live as a believer. And that's the, the main theme that's going on in the book of Hebrews. It's this encouragement to persevere. We need to have endurance because the Christian life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long-distance run. And only those who persevere will finish the race. In verses 1 to 3 in Hebrews chapter 12, it pictures the, the Christian life as a race. You find that there in the, in the first couple of verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance is the Greek word hupomone. That's uh, from the, the, the word hupomeno, from two words, hupo and meno. Uh, hupo means under and meno means to remain. It means to remain under. To endure means to remain under. Stay underneath the weight. Stay underneath the strain. There's something good that God is working out in the pain. The idea is that you persevere instead of looking for an escape. You know, where's the escape hatch? You know, where's the, you know, the, the lever that I can pull and get out of here? You know, as believers, we continue to persevere even through the pain. I remember a number of years ago, I started 
jogging. And uh, after a while, it wasn't, you know, getting tired that stopped me. It was the pain in my shins. I, I didn't even know what shin splints were until I started jogging. It's like, what in, what in the world is this? It was the pain that stopped me from going on. It maybe stopped me from picking it up again, but, <laughs> but it was the pain of it. And the idea here is that if you're going to finish the race, you have to endure the pain. You have to endure the pain. That's the main picture. But as we transition into verse 3, the author moves away from the picture of the pain of the race and it moves to the pain of affliction and discipline. And it becomes a, a bit more personal because instead of using the, the first personal pronouns like we and us and our, in verse 3 he starts saying you, you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So says, I'm talking about you. He's still talking about endurance, but he makes this transition to talk about this, this pain that we endure and what we have to consider. So I want to give you four considerations to cling to so that you don't lose heart, okay? Four considerations to cling to so you don't lose heart. Number one, consider your Savior. Number two, consider your suffering. Number three, consider your season or sonship, and three, uh, number four, consider your season. So, Savior, suffering, sonship, and season. Consider your Savior, your suffering, your sonship, and your season. Number one, consider your Savior. Look at verse three. It says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What are you supposed to, to bring to mind when you're tempted to crumble underneath the weight? You are to consider, to think on, to dwell on, the Savior. He's here to, to be your example because he's the one who endured hostility against himself. That word for, for consider, it's a word that means to seriously consider. It's, a, it's an imperative. It's like saying once and for all, make sure that this thought is lodged in your mind. Consider Jesus. Consider the one who endured hostility. And all throughout the, the ministry of, of Jesus, he was an object of scorn and hostility, wasn't he? An object of, of ridicule. Think about this. Jesus was said to be a sinner uh, because of a denial of the virgin birth. In uh, John 8 and verse 41, his enemy says, uh, we're not born of fornication, are we? You know what they were actually trying to do? They were trying to take a jab at Jesus. You know, we heard about that whole virgin birth thing that it wasn't Joseph. We're not born of fornication. You know, Mary was pregnant before she was married. We're not born of fornication like, like you are, was the implication. They considered him a blasphemer. They call, called him a blasphemer in Matthew chapter 9, verse 3. This fellow blasphemes. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. He was called a demoniac in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 9. Again, he says he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. He was called a deceiver because he predicted that he would rise from the dead. Matthew 27, verse 63, that deceiver, he said, after three days, I'm to rise again. You're in good company if you're misunderstood. <laughs> you're in good company if you've been ridiculed, if you've been scorned. Jesus himself endured that. Consider Jesus. And when you think on top of that, on top of all that he received during his life, that at the end of his life, he was spit on, he was struck, he was beat with fists. He stood before the high priest. They said he's worthy of death. He deserves death. Spat in his face, beat him with their fists. Others slapped him. Prophesied to us, you Christ. Who was the one who hit you? Then following that, he was treated with contempt by Herod. 
dressed him up like a clown, made fun of him, twisted a crown of thorns on his head, put the purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews. They bowed before him and then they rose to slap him in his face. Pilate came out again and said, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And you think, you know, if this is how you treat the person you find no guilt in, how do you treat the guilty, right? I find no guilt in him, but you treat him like this? And then he went to his crucifixion. Crucify him. Crucify him. The cross was the lowest form of capital punishment. In the Jewish context, if they wanted to put you to death, they'd pick up a stone and just, you know, stone you to death. In the Roman context, if they wanted to kill you, they'd just chop your head off, like the Apostle Paul. The cross was reserved for the lowest of the low. We, we don't just want to kill you. We want to humiliate you. We want to show how despised you are. And now when you go through suffering, do you ever think about that? Do you consider Jesus? Like, Lord, I've been through nothing compared to what our Savior went through. And he was worthy of all glory. We just sang about it. You know, worthy is the lamb, right? We talk about the, the, the worth of Jesus Christ, and this is how he was treated when he came to this earth. And then you think you're supposed to escape through life without any kind of ridicule, scorn, pain, affliction at all? Do you really consider Jesus? Do you really know who you're following? Do you know when you say, I'm going to pick up my cross, that you're going in his direction? That's what I'm doing. I'm picking up the cross to follow after him. And if they've done this to your master, what do you think they're going to do to the servants, right? If they do this to the green tree, what do you think they're going to do to the dry? We're following our Savior. Don't forget that. Consider Jesus. He is your example when you suffer. Look to Christ. Number two, consider your suffering. Look at verse four. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And the question that's asked here is, have you really considered the suffering that you do endure? You know, you want to talk about suffering. To what extent has your confrontation gone? How far have you gone in your standing against sin, standing against those who are sinners? The word resist here speaks of opposition. You know, if you've not yet resisted, to the point of shedding blood, talking about enduring this opposition against you, talking about the struggle that this person has, and often it's a struggle with, with sin and str struggle with those who are sinning against us. And the question is, is in your struggle against sin and sinners, uh, have you reached the point where you've shed your blood for it? <laughs> has anybody come in bleeding because they're standing against sin and sinners? Is that any one of you? The Hebrew Christians that are being addressed here hadn't yet sealed their testimony with their blood. They've experienced, you know, loss and, you know, ridicule, but they hadn't yet bled. And he's saying, consider your, consider your, your suffering. Consider Jesus and what he endured, and then look at your life and consider what you endure. And say, is this really worth complaining about? When I look at Christ and then I look at myself, I mean, the two don't compare. I haven't yet shed my blood for the affliction that I'm going through. I know it sounds trite, but it's true that it could always be worse, right? <laughs> and God knows what you can endure. God knows what you can endure. He knows what trials are right for us. I mean, he tailor fits your trials to fit them to you. You know, I had my first suit that was tailored a couple years ago. I never had a, a tailored suit. 
you know, it's like, wow, this is actually, I mean, this fits nice. <laughs> this fits nice. Actually, the, the jacket I'm wearing today was tailored, you know. It's like, this, 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 this fits a lot better than it used to, right? God knows what trials fit you. He tailors your trial for you because he knows what you can endure. He doesn't give somebody else your trials or your trials to somebody else. No, he gives your trials to you because he knows what you can endure. I was recently reading a story from uh, Richard Wormbrand. Suffered torture in communist Romania. Listen to the story that he told about a fellow pastor. He says there was a pastor by the name of Florescu who was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep but had to defend himself all the time. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brothers, but he resisted steadfastly. In the end, they brought his 14-year-old son and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bored as long as he could. When he could stand it no more, he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating. And the son answered, Father, don't give me the injustice to have a traitor as a parent. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communists enraged fell upon the child and beat him to death with blood spattered over the walls of the cell. He died praising God. And our dear brother Floresco was never the same after seeing this. That's not your trial. That's not your trial. That, that was his. That was his trial. But God knows what we each can endure. And God tailor fits our trials for us. Consider your trials. Have you gone to the point of shedding blood and resisting sin, resisting sinners? Have you gone to the point of shedding your blood? We haven't been asked to make that kind of sacrifice in our struggle against sin. And thank God he knows our limitations. Amen. Number three, consider your sonship. Consider your sonship. Look at verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as what? Sons. Your sons. And here we're introduced to the concept of affliction as a means of God's fatherly discipline for his children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And it's important that we understand what it's saying within its context. God is not saying that the the Hebrew Christians are suffering affliction because somehow they're worse than any other Christians. You know, that's why I'm disciplining you because, you know, you've just been so disobedient that I've got to bring this discipline upon you. That's not what he's saying. Think about it within its context. These Hebrews, these believers were suffering for doing what was right. That's why they were suffering, because they named the name of Christ. And then affliction came to them. They were in danger of suffering for what was right. It's because they identified themselves with Jesus that they were being persecuted. That's what Hebrews chapter 10, 32, and 34 say. We should not conclude that evil Christians suffer affliction and obedient Christians escape affliction. That's not what you should think. You know, that's, that's word of faith theology. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. There's no way for us to determine all of the specific reasons that God designs affliction in our lives. I have no way of discerning all of the purposes why you might be enduring affliction today. 
You know, I can't give you an answer for everything that happened to you last week or last month or earlier this year. I can't give you an answer for everything. There are secrets that God doesn't share with us, right? You know, the secret things belong to the Lord. But there are things that are revealed that belong to us that we can examine. MacArthur defines, uh, identifies at least four different purposes for affliction. There's more than this, but I thought these were good. Number one, purpose for affliction, retribution. This is what happened in the life of, of David when, after his sin with Bathsheba, remember after that union, he actually lost the son, lost the child. That was a direct result of the sin. That's retribution. Sometimes we might suffer and it's prevention, prevention. Sometimes God is preventing us from a sin coming to light. You know, that, that we might find ourselves in a sin if we don't suffer some kind of discipline. Like when Paul was given a thorn in his flesh, why was that given? I'm giving you this thorn to prevent you from sinning so that you won't become proud. To keep you from exalting yourself, I'm giving you this thorn in the flesh. It might be prevention, not because of something that you've done, but of something I'm trying to prevent you from doing. Sometimes it's education. Sometimes God is just teaching us something about himself or about ourselves. You know, Job might have never learned the lessons that he did about God if uh, he didn't endure what he endured. In Job 42 and verse 5, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There's something that I've learned more about who you are now that I've endured this. And then there's anticipation. Sometimes the difficulty in our lives just free us from our grip on this world. Like God is saying, you're holding on to this world too tightly. (laughs) Like, Like you need to keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes focused on, you're not in heaven yet. This is not the kingdom here, okay? Like we're looking forward to what's to come. Keep your eyes focused on me to keep us from being distracted by the world. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 4, speaks about this earthly tent that's being destroyed and says, while we're in this tent, we groan that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Like, Like we groan in this tent because it makes us long for the eternal home, right? We long for the true home. But God is using Affliction in in all kinds of ways in our lives. Disciplining us. And God is always using these things to conform us into the image of Christ. All things work together for the good to those who love God or called according to his purpose. And what is the good? That we would be conformed into the image of Christ. Everything that God places in your life is to make you look more like Jesus. That's what God is doing. After we've suffered for a while, 1 Peter 5.10 says... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is is working a work in your life through what he's allowed in your life. He's refining you. You're you're under that refining fire. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. To him, how firm a foundation says it well. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God is doing a refining work in our lives. That's what the word discipline reminds us of. God is doing a work. That God is conforming you. That God is refining you. He's teaching you. And if that includes pain and suffering, so be it, Right? That's that's what we should long to be. We we long to be sanctified. Lord, I want to be like you. Even though it might come through painful means. Our faith is tested. Our wisdom's increased. Our attitudes are adjusted. 
We're to see not our, our trials as some kind of random event, you know, some product of chance, or even some kind of sign of God's hatred. You know, why, is, why does God dislike me so much? You know, like you know, the person who avoids the affliction, like, oh, God likes them and not me. Like, why do I get this? It's actually a sign of God's care for you. That's the way that we need to look at it. The fatherly discipline of God is a sign of God's love and acceptance. Look back at verse, verse 5. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, what? Loves. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. And here are the author cites from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, words of Solomon, and he cites them here and says that uh, when, when you're disciplined, this is actually a sign of God's love for you. It, it shows that you're a son, that you belong to him. And there's a temptation that we have in suffering to either ignore it or we take it too heavy. You know, we take it either too lightly or too heavily. You know, we take it too lightly like, ah, it doesn't matter, or we take it too heavily like this is some kind of sign of God's displeasure. And God says, don't do either one. Don't don't ignore what I'm doing in your life. You know, like, hey, who cares? You know, I'm not going to learn anything. I'm not going to change anything. You know, life is just life. It just happens. You know, it is what it is. You know, I'm not going to be moved. No, you need to examine what you're going through. Like, what, what, what what do I need to learn through this? What do I need to learn? God has an infinite number of ways to get your attention. Don't don't miss it, right? What is God teaching me through what I'm enduring? Don't make light of it. But on the other hand, don't take it too hard. Some people, in the midst of trials, they just totally give up. Like, I'm just going to lay flat on my face, forget it. You know, life is over. You know, why even go on? I can't put one foot in front of the other. They faint. They grow weary. They lose strength. They ball up in a heap. That's the opposite of what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to be hardened by it, but he doesn't want us to be defeated by it either. Like Elijah after Jezebel was uh, chasing him, and he fell down in a heap of Lord, take my life, it's enough. You know, just, just kill me now. I'm not better than my father. It's just like, get up, Elijah. <laughs> get up. What are you doing down there? I've got something I'm trying to show you here. And God is trying to show us something. And God's love is not demonstrated when just everything is, is fine, we never have any difficulties, God's love is also demonstrated when we face difficulties. C.S. Lewis says the Christian does not think that God will love him because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. <laughs> you understand that? Like, like there's something that God is doing in that. It's because he loves you that that's happening. Fatherly discipline is a sign of sonship and our identity with him. Verses 7 and 8 it says it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen to this. If God is not actively working in your life in some way, in some way, (laughs) to produce his holy character in you, if God is not doing that in your life, that might be an indication that you're not a Christian at all. If, If God is not trying to produce holiness in you, then how are you marked out as being his child? Because that's what God does with his sons. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, you have put on the new self who is being renewed. I'm being renewed. That's, that's a sign of sonship. That I'm being renewed. That God is doing a work in my life. 
and he's producing fruit in my life. I know there were sometimes when, uh, you know, growing up, my kids had uh, friends that would come over and they'd get into trouble and I'd, uh, you know, pull my children aside and deal with them, discipline them and leave the kids who are over the house alone. Why did I do that? Is it because I, I love the guests more than I love my own children? No, not at all. It's because these children are mine. <laughs> it's, it's identifying them as sons, daughters. Like, no, you belong to me. I'll call up their parents and tell them to deal with them, right? <laughs> but you belong to me. I'm dealing with you because you're my children. When, when God is dealing with us, what does that say about who we are to God? No, you belong to me. I'm, I'm working something in your life. I'm trying to produce holiness in your life because you belong to me. That's why I'm doing this. It's not because I've, I've abandoned you. It's not a, a sign of, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, hatred against you. No, it's actually a sign that you belong to me. You're mine, and I'm going to work holiness in your life. The persecution that these believers were facing was actually a sign that they were true children, and they needed to bear up under that as sons. And also, fatherly discipline is for our good and our holiness. Look at verse 9. It says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that what? That we may share his holiness. He said you had earthly fathers and you respected them, and I'm not here addressing those that are abusive and disciplined in a way that wasn't respectable, but you know, if you had a, a father that was disciplining you for, for what was right, it's like you respected him for it. You listened to him. It says, how much more should you listen to, to your, your father, the father of spirits? How much more should you listen to God? They did what seemed best to them, but they were intending for your good. But, but I know what's your good. I know what's best for you. And God disciplines us so that we might partake of his holiness. I want you to look more like me. That's why I'm bringing this in your life. I want you to look more like me. And we endure that discipline, that, that training up, that rearing for a period of time in the home because we know that they're producing, trying to produce what's best. And as children of God, we, we bear up under that because we know that God is producing what is best. How much more should we respect our spiritual father who does not do what seems best, but what is best? God is doing something in our lives. He's teaching us something. He's teaching us something so that we might share in his holiness. And we know that God is the one who's all wise He's all good. He knows everything. He's sovereign over all things. And here's where you, you almost get teary-eyed thinking about it, that God loves you so much that he intends to give you what is best. He loves you so much that he's got the best gift in mind for you. And what's best for you? Your holiness. That's what's best for you. He, he's doing what's best in your life. I'm giving you the best gift that I could possibly give you. I know it might be painful to get there, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to have you misunderstand me so that I can produce what's best in your life. I'm producing holiness in you, even at the expense of having you misunderstand them. You know, when a, a parent takes a child to the doctor or to the dentist, you know, they're actually trying to do what's best. <laughs> it might be painful, but I actually want what's best for you. That's why I've brought you here. Not because I just enjoy seeing you in pain. It's because I want to see you helped. I want to see you healed. That's why we do what we do. Which leads us to our final point. Consider your season. Consider your season. Look at verse 11. 
It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And as a parent, and those of you who are parents, you can look a little further down the road than your kids can and see what's, what needs to be done and what changes need to be made and you, you make decisions based on that. Because you see more than they do, right? You see more than they do. And you're looking forward to the fruitful season, whatever that may be in the, in the future. You know, yes, you've, you've got to do your homework and you've got to be, you know, uh, on time and you've, you've got to get these disciplines worked out in your life because I'm seeing something fruitful ahead for you. And there's a, a season. There's, there's a season of discipline and there's a season of bearing fruit. And it's the fruitful season that God is looking forward to. And sometimes... We're under the, the, the darkness and we feel like the darkness will never lift. But God has something else in mind for us. In the middle of an affliction, we're not seeing the joy that God has set before us, right? We're only seeing what, what pain we're in. But while you're in the middle of a trial in the moment, you can look forward to what the Lord has for you on the other side. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 4 says, uh, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It also says, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy, or a heart may be made better. It's seasonal. There's a, there's a season. It doesn't appear joyful for the time, but it's only for a season. And what is God doing? He's producing holiness in our lives. Again, Psalm 119.67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. God, you've been faithful to me. Psalm 94, verse 12, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. And we started with Asaph. I'll, I'll end with Asaph. He says this in verse 25, after he's gone through his time of viewing those that seem to get away with sin, and it's like, Lord, you're afflicting me, and you're letting other people get away, like, in vain I've kept my heart pure. It seems like the people who are doing what's wrong get away with it. Why am I struggling to remain holy? Lord, why am I doing all this? But then in verse 25 of Psalm 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What God did through Asaph's affliction was he caused him to look up. Now look up now. <laughs> look, look up to me. He, he freed him from his, his kind of grip on this world. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Is, is that what you see? Do you see the nearness of God is your good? That's what I long for more than anything else, to be near to God. The nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What does affliction do in our lives? It weans us from the world. It says, I can't find my primary satisfaction here. I, I'm, I'm made for a kingdom to come. Like, like I've, I'm actually a citizen of heaven. I'm not a, primarily a citizen of this earth. It weans us from the world. It casts us to look more upon God, causes our faces to look up, look up to him. It makes the promises of God more precious to us. It qualifies us to sympathize with others in their weaknesses demonstrates to us the blessedness and the sufficiency of God. It develops spiritual grace and character in our lives, holiness in our lives. And it brings us into the fellowship of Jesus Christ because we have one who has suffered before us, right? 
We have one who has suffered before us and it's in our sufferings that we're brought into closer communion with Jesus Christ. Don't you want to look more like the Savior? We want to look more like Christ, don't we? So we bear up under the sufferings and allow God to do whatever shaping and sharpening and refining that he needs to do to make us look more like the Savior, amen? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word. Father, we're grateful that your, your word is, uh, is rich, it's powerful. Uh, Lord, it gives us everything that we need for life and godliness and perseverance in our lives. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to persevere. Uh, Father, we thank you for the examples around us of those who persevere even in times of affliction. And, uh, Father, I pray that we would hold on to our hope firm until the end and that you, Lord, would be glorified and honored in our lives as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.